This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. Outer Blue by Amundi. Welcome to Blue Convictions, market analysis and asset allocation views. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening uh, to all friends and colleagues uh, around uh, this call. We're very happy uh, to start this week by a conversation on the day after, uh, the first of its kind. Last week, uh, Amundi launched a series of thematic papers uh, on the day after the COVID crisis. Uh, that is going to be focused on the most important questions we believe investors should care about in trying to project themselves in this new post-COVID-19 world. Uh, So to uh, open uh, this uh, series by, I would say, a direct uh, explanation uh, of what we believe, I'm very happy today uh, to engage this conversation with Pascal Blanquet, our Chief Investment Officer, who published last week the first paper I was referring to, uh, where basically uh, Pascal uh, is explaining how the uh, COVID-19 plays the role of a new invisible hand uh, that, uh, in his view, uh, has massively reinforced some trends that were already at stake. Uh, And so I'm very happy today that uh, we have Pascal with us uh, to uh, detail a little bit uh, what he's thinking of this new regime. So, um, Pascal, uh, first question. uh, In a document you published last year, and that was uh, relatively massively uh, echoed in the international press, uh, you were already pointing uh, to the possibility of a new economic and financial regime shift uh, taking investors to the road back to the 70s. So can you explain to us uh, what uh, this uh, change of regime is uh, and what are the main elements that are accompanying this new regime that, to use uh, your expression, uh, makes that we were thinking we were in 2020 and we woke up uh, in 1970. So please maybe first explain what this new regime is for you. Okay, uh, thank you. Good morning to, uh, to all. One year ago, I made the point that at the next recession, we would see uh, a regime shift uh, with, uh, with arguably uh, many points in common with uh, not the 1930s, as many think, uh, many think, uh, but with the, uh, the um, 70s. Actually, I think it's important to have uh, in mind uh, what are the main uh, features of the uh, uh, regimes, the macro-financial regimes we've gone through uh, since the, the 70s. In the 70s, actually, it was uh, all about a regime of uh, public debt monetized, uh, a sharing of added value in favor of uh, wages, of our profits, and uh, as a consequence, uh, um, uh, inflation uh, of goods and services prices. Uh, this, those are the, the main features going uh, together with uh, a certain definition of uh, the institutions, uh, starting with central banks and uh, and uh, even budgetary policy. Then we moved into the 90s. And the starting point was symbolically uh, the arrival of uh, Mr. Volcker on the monetary side of the uh, of the equation together with, uh, I would say, a narrative of uh, budgetary authority uh, on the uh, budgetary uh, side. This regime was uh, initiated uh, basically uh, with uh, private debt, uh, 
uh, as a core a component throughout uh, the, the 90s, a sharing of added value in favor of profits uh, over wages and, uh, and inflation in the sense of uh, asset price inflation, not uh, inflation uh, of uh, goods uh, and, and services. This uh, regime was uh, deflationary in nature since uh, he um, basically uh, set the scene for uh, asset bubbles, bubbles uh, burst eventually, and uh, igniting uh, deflationary forces and forcing uh, the uh, governments and the central banks to step in. So at the end of uh, this uh, regime, actually, we ended up with a public debt, uh, private debt, asset price inflation, and various signs of uh, challenges to the regime in many areas. Uh, often a regime uh, com is coming to an end when the consequences of the regime are no longer tolerated by the uh, wider society. Uh, uh, I can mention the uh, rising inequality as a, as a driving uh, theme uh, in, the, in the regime, asset bubbles and the consequences of their, uh, of their bursting. Uh, on top of that, actually, um, uh, I should mention before the, uh, the coronavirus crisis, the fact that we, I was uh, struck by uh, the, um, I would say, what I would call the intellectual uh, victory of uh, this idea that uh, monetary policies uh, and budgetary policies should uh, embrace much more uh, non-orthodox, uh, aggressive, accommodative uh, stance. Uh, it was already there uh, before uh, the, uh, the virus, and the virus was an acceleration of uh, this, uh, strength, this uh, trend. So uh, the, the point I'm making is that uh, we are not uh, likely to move uh, straight away uh, into the, to the 70s, but uh, if you think of the various ingredients we've got now on the table. The fact that uh, basically the borders between monetary and budgetary policies are more and more blurred, that we will be embracing a phase of uh, arguably various formats of uh, debt monetization, uh, whatever uh, the, uh, the definition uh, across, uh, across the globe. Uh, the fact that uh, basically uh, there are various seeds of uh, future uh, inflation or higher inflationary expectations uh, due uh, directly or indirectly to the uh, the virus. The uh, cost supply uh, shock is uh, is one uh, brought by uh, by the virus. Uh, if you adapt this uh, to uh, the various uh, impacts of uh, the so-called deglobalization in terms of uh, prices, the fact that uh, Monetary policy is uh, moving into a new, uh, a, a new phase coupled with uh, uh, aggressive budgetary uh, stimulation and the fact as well that uh, the um, some rebalancing of the, the added value, uh, the sharing of added value between profits and wages is uh, likely down the road. Actually, you end up with this uh, conclusion that if you, uh, if you try to find uh, um, historical period where uh, some uh, comparisons can be made, 
you uh, you don't end in the 30s actually you are probably ending somewhere in the uh, in the 70s whatever the format of what could be uh, a road back to the 70s the 70s have been uh, complex uh, with uh, various subsequences of uh, stagflation or uh, uh, strong growth coupled with inflation. So there are various uh, 70s uh, as well. I do insist on this, uh, the fact that uh, regime shifts are uh, always uh, preceded by intellectual uh, victories and uh, academic consensus. Uh, uh, and uh, there are examples uh, in the last, uh, I would say, two years, just uh, thinking of uh, the... Um, address of uh, Blanchard uh, on the fact that public debt may have uh, no fiscal cost as the ratio of debt to GDP could decrease over time thanks to uh, very low interest rates at equilibrium. Uh, Larry Summers uh, noted uh, on his side that a lower natural interest rate of equilibrium uh, paved the way for greater tolerance of uh, budget deficits and unconventional monetary policies. Uh, and this is uh, basically uh, becoming a, a reality uh, with the uh, COVID-19 playing the role, in my view, of a sort of invisible hand, uh, um, gathering various pieces uh, in the society, in the institutions, in the uh, investment community to uh, form a new uh, narrative and a new uh, framework uh, for a regime uh, shift. Regime shifts are, uh, are, are not coming uh, straight away, uh, to be clear. I don't expect uh, to move into an inflationary world uh, tomorrow in the morning. It takes time, but I do firmly believe that we have moved into uh, a transi transitory phase and for sure, uh, closing, uh, closing the, uh, the period initiated by uh, Paul Volcker, uh, in the, uh, in the eighties. Thanks, Pascal. Uh, but I would like to come back on one thing because you mentioned that this new regime uh, may be characterized by a question of uh, frontiers being blurred between budget, budget uh, and monetary policy, uh, impact of uh, monetization uh, of uh, <coughs> a lot uh, of debt. Uh, in, uh, in the systems, uh, different uh, inflation regime, uh, a new trend uh, in globalization probably leading to more deglobalization, and finally a different uh, sharing of the value uh, between uh, capital and wages. Uh, all these trends, as you mentioned, were, al were already uh, there uh, before the COVID-19, but in your view, can you explain how the COVID-19 crisis is reinforcing all, all these elements? In which way is it even more a trigger uh, for this new regime that you were already expecting last year? So I see, I see COVID-19, uh, generally speaking, as an invisible end, and there are various aspects. One is to uh, bring back uh, returns uh, in line with uh, what is uh, sustainable uh, in the in the long run, and the uh, regime shift is a, is a second uh, a critical aspect uh, uh, to me. One aspect of the recession actually is to uh, force uh, the uh, structural change in the in the policy mix in a social and political and societal context where. 
uh, actually there uh, is uh, arguably uh, an immense social demand for uh, protection and action uh, from an economic and uh, social uh, uh, standpoint, actually. So in that sense, uh, COVID is uh, accelerating uh, a trend, but the trend was uh, pre-existing. Uh, it was uh, obvious to me that uh, in the various societies, uh, this uh, demand uh, for uh, action uh, protection, coupled with the idea that uh, we uh, had not uh, exhausted uh, the room of for maneuvers uh, on the monetary and the budgetary uh, sides. Uh, so this is uh, um, unleashed uh, by uh, COVID-19. I think it's important because uh, we've been living with the mantra uh, that uh, we had exhausted uh, uh, all, all rooms for maneuver uh, on the monetary and budgetary side actually, and it was called into question by uh, academics, uh, Summers, uh, Blanchard, the MMT, uh, um, um, a school of thought, uh, actually. And this, uh, this uh, narrative, actually, is, uh, is, uh, is winning, actually. Uh, there is always a, a regime shift happens than the, when the narratives uh, becomes uh, popular, uh, gets a majority in various circles, in the streets, in the political parties, in the institutions, in the academic circles, uh, for influences uh, uh, as well. I think it is it is the case. This uh, this idea that uh, we had exhausted uh, everything uh, in terms of policy mix action was uh, was uh, was wrong. Uh, and uh, actually is uh, losing uh, ground. The second aspect is the crisis itself that can be uh, analyzed as a cost supply shock uh, and uh, coupled with a trend towards deglobalization. The trend towards deglobalization uh, was already uh, there, actually. I uh, uh, wrote a paper uh, three years ago uh, saying that uh, we shouldn't uh, anymore uh, confuse uh, global growth with global trade, actually. The, uh, the fall in the contribution of global trade to global growth uh, is, uh, is with us, uh, has been with us for, uh, with, uh, for uh, now uh, three or two, five years, actually. Uh, the election of Trump brought uh, these, the protectionist, I would say, touch uh, to the theme, and COVID is uh, basically accelerating the trend, uh, bringing uh, bringing um, um, a fragmentation uh, of uh, uh, value-added chains uh, towards more proximity, uh, towards more, uh, I would say, a national uh, or even regional. Uh, um, engines uh, for for growth. And this, uh, this is uh, likely uh, to bring uh, to the um, uh, higher uh, inflation uh, story uh, down the road. Again, it will take time, but uh, the uh, base effects are massive uh, in that space since we are starting from, uh, I would say, uh, 
uh, radar zero for inflation and inflationary expectations. Look at the tips in the markets. Look at the surveys. Uh, basically, uh, the idea that inflation is dead forever is entrenched. So uh, investors should uh, basically look now uh, at the coming uh, battle between deflationary and inflationary forces, actually. And uh, the point I'm making is... Uh, is that the uh, the various uh, seeds of uh, higher inflationary expectations are, are are around? So it may translate into various things. Uh, um, uh, you can argue that uh, the uh, stagflationary uh, case is uh, is uh, is one of them, uh, with the uh, increase in the cost of output uh, brought by the COVID-19 crisis being to an extent. Uh, the equivalent of the uh, cost supply shock brought by whole oil in the uh, in the uh, 70s so um so this is uh, this is um uh, this is uh, basically what i'm uh, i'm seeing from the window again it's not uh, for tomorrow in the morning but for long term investor actually it's time uh, to look uh, to look um to look um, through different lenses. Uh, thanks, Pascal. Uh, maybe before coming to uh, the question of uh, how investors uh, shall think about that and start to also to position, or at least to uh, envisage to position themselves vis-à-vis uh, -vis this progressive uh, regime shift, uh, a question uh, that we didn't prepare in advance, uh, so, uh, but it's going to be even more interesting uh, to have uh, your spontaneous answer. Uh, in the very same week, you published uh, your paper, uh, and uh, yesterday, uh, Rubini uh, published uh, his paper uh, explaining that uh, he was considering clearly uh, the, the same path that you're designing, and uh, that there is a, a regime shift. Uh, but uh, with a very strong orientation in his case, explaining that the 2020s are going to be a lost decade, uh, basically, uh, with a, a scenario of, uh, let's say, stagflation uh, at least. Um, what do you think, uh, spontaneously, uh, if I think you, you had, you had, you had looked at, uh, at his little memo, uh, what do you think of that? Uh, and uh, can you explain uh, how maybe there are different uh, ways forward and not only and that taxation uh, is not the only uh, path we have uh, in front of us? Short term, the, uh, it's, uh, it's obvious to me that the sh short term, the shock is deflationary, uh, actually, and this is the reason why uh, we've, we will see more from the, the policy mixes uh, across uh, uh, across the globe, uh, but I'm not sure uh, at all that we will stay in this kind of uh, deflationary environment uh, for uh, forever, actually, because the uh, the very uh, reaction to this uh, deflationary shock, uh, given the pre-existing trends, is uh, is likely, in my view, to accelerate uh, the trends towards uh, something different. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, outcome, uh, this is this is one remark. The second, actually, uh, for me, the COVID-19 is an invisible end, uh, bringing, uh, uh, as I said, uh, returns uh, back uh, to uh, uh, to um, I would say uh, a lower uh, regime uh, for returns, and at least back. To what is uh, sustainable from a long-term uh, standpoint. Actually, 
it was obvious to me that uh, uh, in the precedent uh, regime, uh, we were faced with uh, severe deviations, upward deviations of uh, asset prices uh, compared with, uh, for example, earnings of trend uh, to take uh, to take a proxy of the uh, real uh, uh, economy. Uh, a euro-based uh, portfolio 50-50 equity uh, bonds, global, uh, actually uh, returned uh, last year 19.4%, uh, 8.8 uh, per year between 2010 and 2020. Uh, if you include the impact of the virus crisis, we are 6.7, taking a 10-year uh, view, uh, with a volatility of uh, roughly uh, 7% and, uh, and a sharp ratio of uh, above 1%, actually. So this was uh, exceptional. Uh, and uh, beyond the last 10 years, if you take uh, dollar-based the same type of portfolio, dollar-based, actually, uh, uh, this portfolio has returned uh, eight to nine percent a year, actually, which uh, which is uh, which reasonably uh, exceptional. So, what I do expect uh, moving forward is uh, is uh, is a move into uh, era of uh, diminishing returns, where the same portfolio. Uh, should return uh, at best uh, 3.5 to 4 uh, percent before inflation, taxes, and fees. Um, so uh, basically, twice less, at least, uh, compared with the uh, the uh, average of the um, of the last decades, the the Volcker decades or the globalization 1.0 uh, period. Okay, so that is the first message is that investors should convince themselves uh, that uh, uh, the, we are moving into a new regime of returns, uh, call it uh, normalized returns, where basically uh, uh, they should expect less. Uh, part of it is uh, uh, due to the fact that in the precedent regimes, let's say the two to three last decades, uh, monetary forces have explained uh, the bulk of uh, uh, asset uh, uh, returns. The uh, real uh, factor uh, uh, was uh, less uh, prominent or um, uh, was less an explanatory uh, variable. It was uh, uh, the monetary nature of returns in the uh, regime uh, initiated by uh, Volcker and that is uh, ending now. Uh, actually was in in essence a monetary uh, type of uh, um, um, regime for um, for returns so this this is the uh, the, the first uh, uh, actually point uh, I would make the second is that having said that uh, most uh, investors or long term investors uh, will ask their themselves uh, what should I do should I had uh, risk in order to, let's say, uh, achieve 5% compared with uh, 3.5? Or should I uh, cut costs? Let's call it the cost-adjusted uh, returns. So probably both, and we will see uh, probably uh, both. Uh, 
uh, on the cost side, it's obvious that we are moving uh, into a phase that uh, the trend was already there where uh, you will find uh, the average portfolios uh, split uh, between uh, cheap beta, idiosyncratic alpha, for which investors will be ready to pay, and uh, and the third the big pocket of what I would call income, uh, replacing the uh, old-fashioned uh, fixed income uh, portfolio govies uh, in the uh, old times, and more recently the corporate uh, investment grade, so, uh, so income uh, uh, probably. So adding risk, I think it's not a panacea. This was uh, one of the messages uh, I sent at uh, the beginning of uh, this year, uh, actually before uh, the, the, the correction in the sense that volatility seemed to me uh, abnormally low. Uh, and uh, adding, adding risk uh, just to achieve 5%, uh, would have meant for the uh, long-term investors basically to uh, bring their equity exposure uh, to 78% with a volatility of 9.3% uh, and a sharp ratio of uh, 0 0.5. Uh, and it, it seemed to me uh, too uh, aggressive and uh, relatively asymmetric in terms of uh, uh, risk return profile. Well, so we, we were suggesting actually to, uh, uh, to, um, to scale down the equity exposure in the region of to uh, five, 55% and, and to bring more diversification elsewhere, real assets, style factors in order to uh, add risk, but uh, uh, reasonably. Uh, I've not changed my mind. Uh, I think that adding risk uh, for adding risk is not a panacea uh, in this uh, current uh, uh, environment. Still, uh, uh, still, um, the portfolios got to be uh, revisited and reorganized uh, um, throughout a different uh, allocation of the of the risk budget. The third uh, message in relation to the 70s story is that long-term investors should uh, start thinking about uh, what could be, uh, if I'm right, uh, not tomorrow in the morning again, uh, but uh, there are long-term investors uh, basically having uh, long-term liabilities, uh, and they should start thinking about the um, what could their portfolio look like in this kind of uh, environment I was uh, referring to, uh, in the sense that, uh, if I'm right, the hierarchy of uh, risk premium and uh, asset classes, or the uh, utility functions of uh, asset classes will, uh, will be modified by the regime shift. The uh, utility function of governmental bonds, for sure, uh, think of the 70s, uh, the real assets, uh, their utility function is uh, is uh, strengthened or should be strengthened in this kind of uh, uh, environment. Those are uh, um, uh, examples. Uh, and again, there there are not one uh, 1970s. Uh, if you look uh, in depth uh, in the 70s, there were uh, various uh, sub regimes of. Uh, 
growth uh, with inflation, uh, no growth with inflation, so stagflation, uh, even recession with uh, with uh, higher inflation expectations. So this is my uh, third uh, uh, third message. So one is uh, you should expect diminishing returns in the region of 3.5 before everything, taxes, inflation, and fees. Uh, two, uh, adding risk for adding risk uh, uh, in the current framework is not a panacea. So the, uh, it's probably a combination of cutting costs and reorganizing, reorganizing the, uh, the, the risk budget with a decent uh, uh, target return uh, of, uh, uh, in my view, uh, 5% with a volatility of uh, 8%. And three, uh, get ready to uh, to turn your portfolio or even start positioning it uh, in relation with uh, with uh, the um, uh, a different hierarchy of risk premium and asset classes in a regime where uh, we should see we could see a revival of uh, inflationary expectations. Well, thanks a lot, Pascal. So you explained very clearly uh, what this uh, rigid sh regime shift uh, could be, what are the trends behind uh, this uh, regime shift that has been reinforced by the current crisis. You explained afterwards the three main implications uh, you see there uh, for investors. Um, going forward, uh, what are you going to look at uh, to uh, confirm uh, your view that this regime shift is going to, ha uh, to happen. So what are, you, wh what are you going to observe in particular uh, to see uh, if uh, your uh, analysis uh, intuition uh, will be confirmed by the facts? Actually, for sure, the data uh, will or will not uh, send the, uh, the appropriate signals. But beyond the, the data, uh, actually, uh, uh, I'm pretty much uh, um, I'm focusing on on the change of narratives. Uh, I think the narratives are powerful in the financial market and uh, economics uh, in, uh, in 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 general. A regime shift is a change of narrative. Actually, you uh, and typically uh, you start uh, seeing. Uh, uh, some words disappearing. Uh, for example, uh, uh, austerity is no longer uh, a word uh, uh, in the uh, on the agenda. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty much focusing on the uh, stances, uh, the um, the narratives of uh, influences, uh, um, some uh, some. Uh, what I call the uh, intellectual uh, circles or influences like uh, Blanchard, etc. Uh, because usually uh, a regime shift happens when there is a new consensus, uh, basically uh, building and approved. At some point, what seems uh, basically separate, fragmented, uh, basically uh, coagulates and accelerates. And uh, uh, and uh, the, this is the way I, I, I see it, actually. I, I think that we are not far from an alignment of planets between the man or the woman in the street, uh, political parties, whatever the, uh, the, uh, the end goal, uh, uh, for, uh, and institutions, actually, for a change. And this, uh, this is coming with a societal uh, powerful move uh, towards uh, basically uh, 
the necessity to uh, fulfill uh, some uh, needs in terms of uh, investment in infrastructure, in uh, education. Uh, so this is not only about monetary policy mm. or, you know, an interest, a leading interest rate, actually. It's a, it, it's a regime is basically uh, uh, incorporating various ingredients that uh, before the regime shift seem uh, basically isolated, fragmented, and then at some point it turns into a narrative, a powerful narrative reinforcing uh, action uh, with the, the backing of, uh, of the uh, wider uh, uh, society. I think we, are, we have reached this point and, uh, and the COVID is, uh, is, uh, is the, is the, um, is the final stop in the, uh, old, um, in old regime. I think that we've got the alignment of uh, planet, uh, with the backing of some intellectual forces, actually, to tell uh, another story. I'm not saying that it's good or bad. Actually, I'm, I'm seeing it as a fact. Uh, to be taken as it is by uh, long-term investors. You will find people, and, and they are probably uh, uh, smart people, telling you that we are moving into a fiscal dominance, that we are moving into uh, more hazard uh, across the board in financial markets, and there is some truth uh, uh, to it. Uh, but the point to me is that we are moving. So what is very interesting in what you're saying is that basically a regime shift happens uh, when a, a new narrative has become mainstream and consensual, and in a way, a new regime happens when nobody notices it uh, anymore. Uh, and now we're maybe at the moment where we can look at the signals uh, that are here or there and that are showing that uh, this regime shift uh, is uh, is happening. Um, Pascal, uh, I would like to thank you really much for this conversation. Uh, I think uh, you have... Uh, touch base a number uh, of uh, very complex issues uh, for uh, our clients at the moment. The whole series of the day after paper, uh, we're going to tackle, uh, I would say, each uh, of the bricks uh, that uh, you've already started to analyze uh, more and more uh, in detail. Um, but I think uh, before ending the call, uh, I would like uh, to conclude uh, on recalling uh, what were your, I would say, three main recommendations for the day after. Uh, adjust your uh, long-term return expectations. Uh, then the addition of risk, uh, additional risk may not be the panacea in that perspective. And there are other ways forward. Uh, and third, uh, and that will be uh, one of the topics that is going to be addressed uh, in uh, the paper uh, that your team is preparing. Uh, revisit uh, the hierarchy uh, of the asset classes uh, and their utility functions. I think these are three uh, very, uh, I would say, important elements to take uh, on board for all our clients uh, in their thinking of the day after. Based on that, Pascal, I would like to thank you uh, really much for the conversation. Uh, and uh, I'm pretty sure uh, we're going to have uh, other conversations uh, with you uh, on the different blocks uh, of this uh, of uh, of this question. So thank you very much for being with us and participating to this call this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors, as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, 
investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.